Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. You know, at a time when the American public appears not to be that interested in foreign policy, I'm absolutely sure that you can be certain that this audience is informed and it's going to have lots of questions, and in a few minutes we're going to open it up. But let me go on and just ask this to, to start it off. Um, both of you served uh, with, with George H.W. Bush at a, at a time when the Soviet Union was, was breaking up. Um, Secretary Rice, you've been very involved, of course, with uh, the Freedom Agenda and the uh, Arab Spring. The, so give us a sense of, of the trends that, and, and the, of, of, both, of, of both revolutions in a re very real sense. Maybe you'd like to, to start, Secretary Baker. Well, of course, the, uh, the collapse of communism, the end of the Cold War, and finally the implosion of the Soviet Union uh, was something that happened over a period of 40 years and happened uh, really, in my view, because of the steadfast uh, commitment of every American president from Harry Truman on, both Republican and Democratic, and the steadfast commitment as well of our strong allies uh, in uh, Western Europe uh, and in, uh, in Japan, South Korea, and elsewhere. Of course, uh, I think Condi might agree with me when I say I don't think that the uh, revolutions of 1989, 1990 would have happened without the uh, commitment, uh, without the strong desire on the part of the people of the captive nations of uh, Eastern and Central Europe for freedom. Uh, and freedom from uh, Soviet uh, oppression and Soviet uh, tyranny. And uh, so they deserve a large uh, measure of the credit, I think, for what happened. Just as it, with respect to the Arab Spring, it's the people of those Arab countries who are finally sick and tired of living under oppression and uh, are ex exerting and exhibiting uh, their strong desire for freedom. So. Uh, at least in those two respects, the, the, the events are, are, I think, quite similar. Yes, I would, I would agree um, with uh, Jim on a couple of points. Uh, first of all, uh, the ingredients uh, for what you're seeing in the streets of the Middle East, as well as what happened in Eastern Europe, uh, really exist in the, the human heart. People do not want to live in tyranny. And ultimately, even though uh, their freedom can be delayed, it ultimately can't be denied, even by a very powerful state uh, like the Soviet Union. There's something else, uh, too, that is really important for American policy. Um, after the end of World War II, when the United States thought about stability in Europe post-World War II, uh, American leaders had a somewhat different concept of how that would happen than did our European counterparts. Churchill was known to, or was said to have said, he liked Germany so much he'd like as many of them as possible. So dismember Germany and then the balance of power will be all right. Well, for uh, particularly Truman and, uh, and others, they sought instead to build a democratic Germany 
that would never war again with a democratic France and to put it into the context of a democratic collective security organization named NATO. So they associated democracy with stability. I think what you're seeing in the Middle East is that perhaps for a while we tended to instead to see authoritarianism and stability. And now what we're seeing is that authoritarianism isn't stable. We've got to uh, reassert American values in support of those who are uh, seeking their freedom. But we need to remember freedom and democracy are not the same thing. Once people get their freedom, the road to institutionalizing that freedom in democratic institutions is a very hard one, and I think we're going to see a pretty turbulent Middle East as a result. I agree with that. And you gave a major, major speech, I believe it was in 2005 in Cairo. That's correct. And, and the idea here was that uh, w the authoritarian regimes, particularly those that were our friends, like uh, Mubarak in, in Egypt, uh, some of the monarchies, uh, that they should get ahead of this bow wave that was coming of, of people desiring freedom. I always said, I said to Mubarak, reform before your people are in the streets, because once people are in the streets and uh, fear has been replaced by anger, it's really tough to have a smooth uh, transition. And so uh, reform has come late in the Middle East, and that's why it looks chaotic. And that's one difference, too, uh, between the two revolutions. That is, uh, that of Central and Eastern Europe and that of the Arab Spring. The leaders, uh, the, the totalitarian leaders, the dictators, got out ahead, at least as far as the Soviet Union was concerned. Gorbachev. And uh, Gorbachev and Shevardnadze, mm -hmm. I know Condi will agree with me on this, are going to be treated extraordinarily well by history, in my view. Not, maybe not in, in Russia today, but they're going to be treated well by history generally because those two men made the, the fundamental decision. To, uh, to forswear the use of force to keep the empire together. Up until that time, the Soviet empire had been kept together by force. So they got out in front of it, and uh, that permitted then some of the leaders in Central Absolutely. and Eastern Europe to get out in front. You had a very close relationship with President Mubarak. You probably have mixed emotions watching what's taking place. Well, I think we ought to remember that uh, I'm with Condi on this. We, you know, we, we used to talk, when I was Treasury Secretary, we used to talk to Mubarak a lot about it. you want to, you want the free market to, to function well in your country you need to do some things you need to do some things that have to do with opening up the political space and the economic space and you need to uh, you need to uh, give your people more more transparency and and uh, and more freedom he didn't want to hear that uh, having said that, I think we ought to all understand that this was a strong ally of the United States for 30 years. Uh, Osni Mubarak uh, was strong on the peace process between Arabs and Israelis, followed uh, right in lockstep with the United States' position on that. He, in fact, sent troops to fight alongside Americans in the first Gulf War when we liberated Kuwait. Uh, he was there on, on so many uh, occasions. So. Yes, it's not, uh, it's not particularly pleasant to see somebody like that who's been such a strong ally uh, wait too long mm -hmm. to, to try to implement the reforms that are so necessary. But as Condi said, the, the, people, uh, the people's desire, the human heart's desire for freedom was not going to be denied. Let's look at the headlines today. Yesterday, the International Atomic Energy Agency <clears throat> released a report stating its belief that Iran has really accelerated its attempts to have a nuclear weapon. 
Um, what does this mean for us? What are our options? Well, I dealt a lot with the Iranian uh, problem, and uh, it's not a surprise to me that the IAEA has uh, released this report. The Iranian, the, uh, most of the focus had been on the Iranian effort to develop the fuel for a nuclear weapon. That's the enrichment and reprocessing that you read about, where they would try to reprocess uranium to the point that it was pure enough to use for a nuclear weapon. That they, the IAEA report really speaks to the fact that they've also been working to develop the other components and capabilities to be able to actually weaponize uh, what's called a sort of trigger to be able to actually make an explosion at the right time. Uh, they've been working on those sorts of technologies. So it now is pretty clear, what I think was clear to us, that Iran is trying to get a nuclear weapon. Now, you have options, and the President of the United States should never take the military option off the table, but I don't think there is anyone who wants to see the American President have to exercise that option. And that means that the time for the toughest possible diplomacy uh, has more than come and gone. We, have, uh, we were able to get uh, uh, four rounds of Security Council, three rounds of Security Council resolutions against the Iranians in 2006, 2007, and 2008. The Obama administration was able to get another very tough round. But there are a lot of much more um, sanctions that could make life much more difficult for the Iranians than have not been taken. Uh, you could, for instance, embargo oil and gas uh, imports and exports. You could do something to the Iranian Central Bank. The Russians and the Chinese are out saying, you know, don't back the Iranians into a corner, but it's high time to back the Iranians into a corner because you don't want to have to use force uh, here. Let me, let me add to that. <clears throat> that is absolutely correct, and the, uh, and the choice really is not and should not be a choice between military action or nothing. Uh, further sanctions, the sanctions are beginning to give some evidence, the economic ones particularly, right. are biting with respect to Iran. Uh, and, and there's a lot more that can be done there. And now that she's getting closer and the IAEA says she is developing a weapon, you may see Russia and China change their view. Hopefully that's the case. But even beyond that, we ought not to discard or discount or throw away the possibility and the option of containment. We contained the Soviet Union for 40 years. Soviet Union had enough weapons to blow up the entire world, and they never used them because they knew the minute they uh, thought about using one or used one, we were going to blow them off the face of the earth. Now, these Ayatollahs are flaky people. They're flaky, but I don't buy the argument for one minute that they don't have a very serious uh, self-preservation instinct. And I think what we ought to do at some point in this dance is to pick, have the President of the United States pick up the phone and call the head Ayatollah and say, hey, pal, you even so much as, as, as wink at Israel or at us, uh, and guess what? We will blow you off the face of the earth. We had 3,500 strategic nuclear weapons, and guess what further? They were just targeted on you. Now, they'd understand that. And, and, uh, and, and let, me, let me give you a real, a, a personal example of what I'm talking about. When we were getting ready to go to war to kick Iraq out of Kuwait, and I was gonna have one President Bush 
41 asked me to go have one last guest meeting with the, Iran with the Iraqi foreign minister, Tariq Aziz, in Geneva, and I flew over there. And the Defense Department, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and others said, would you please pass a message for us that he better not use his uh, weapons of mass destruction. He had chemical weapons, uh, and we knew that. He had a preliminary biological capability. But, but I said to Tariq Aziz during the course of that meeting, I said, Mr. Minister, I have to tell you something. If you use weapons of mass destruction against our forces, the American people will demand revenge. And I said, we have the means to exact it. And I said, Mr. Minister, that is not a threat. It is a promise. And guess what? When they caught Saddam and debriefed him, he asked him why he didn't use his chemical weapons in that first Gulf War, and he said, because of what Baker told Aziz in Geneva. So crazy people do have an instinct for self-preservation. <laughs> Let's hope so. <clears throat> Secretary Baker, earlier this year, you said on Farid Zakaria's program, I'm coming more and more around to the view that it's time to take a close look at our involvement in Afghanistan. Yeah whether it's in the vital national interest of the United States. I'd like to hear your thoughts well, about here's that. Well, here's what I mean by that. I totally, completely, and absolutely support what President Bush 43 did in sending our forces into Afghanistan in 2001 because that's where we were attacked from. I'm having a little difficulty today. We're 10 years, 11 years, 10 years along now. We've got 110,000 pairs of boots on the ground. Our own CIA tells us there are only 125 Al-Qaeda in uh, Afghanistan, and I just wonder whether the cost-benefit uh, of that really makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm not suggesting we ought to pick up and bug out. Far from it. But strangely enough, I find myself in, in agreement with the current Vice President of the United States, with whom I'm rarely in agreement. <laughs> but, but, but he said, he argued internally in the Obama administration for a policy of counterterrorism rather than counterinsurgency. The idea being the Soviets were never able to do counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, neither were the Brits, nobody in history has ever been able to do it. So why don't we go to a policy of counterterrorism in most of the country, maybe counterinsurgency in the big cities. That will give us the opportunity then to begin bringing our forces home, which is something that I think we should do. And Dr. Rice, you're very concerned about Pakistan. Uh, I am, and, and I think we can get there, Jim, uh, to where you want to be. In fact, when we did the Afghan operation, we did it with the so-called light footprint because we were all very much uh, influenced by what had happened to the Soviet Union in having too many troops on the ground and becoming a target for um, the Afghans uh, who don't much yeah. like foreign intervention when it comes right down to it. I think we can get there. Uh, I think we need a transition from where we are now to uh, where we want to be. And the uh, NATO deadline is apparently 2014. So we ought to ask ourselves, what do we want to achieve in that period of time? And I would say three things, two of which I think are doable, one of which is, is more difficult. One, we ought to be training the Afghan security forces to prevent an existential attack on the government in Afghanistan. That means the Taliban will do their hit and run thing, they will, but that they cannot overthrow the Afghan government. And I think that that can be done because the Afghans are good fighters, you can train them for those missions. 
Secondly, uh, we need to help the Afghans get to something like decent governance because the reason that Afghan people turn or at least uh, tolerate the Taliban is that their needs are not being taken care of. You can't do it all in Kabul. You ought to be helping provincial governors with uh, reconstruction and so forth. Those two things I think we can do in the transition to where uh, Jim wants to be. The one that's hardest is Pakistan. This is a place that is riven with extremism through and through. Uh, people have asked me, was I surprised that we got Osama bin Laden? Absolutely not. Was I surprised where we got Osama bin Laden? Yes, because he was basically in a suburb of, of the, uh, the Pakistani capital, kind of in their West Point. How could this happen? Well, because it is a country that is quite unstable. It has a weak democratic government. It has an army that is still trying to fight India when really the Indians want no part of it. The Indians want Bangalore and Bollywood and a seat on the Security Council. And there are still too many elements of Pakistan for whom fighting the Indians in Kashmir is a part of their raison d'etre. So I worry about whether we can create a more stable environment in Pakistan as a predicate to uh, getting out of Afghanistan. But that's, uh, <clears throat> and I agree with that, but I also uh, would like to add that another reason I think we need to do something about our current Afghanistan policy is because we do not have allies there that we can count on. We cannot count on Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan's a nuclear uh, weapons country, and of course we don't want to see that uh, devolve or evolve into uh, a totally unstable and, uh, and uh, chaotic country. So we need to do what we can to prevent that from happening. But in terms of our effort in Afghanistan, Pakistan has not been all that helpful. And they're now not really not being helpful. And, and the government, I say, sad to say, of Hamid Karzai in Afghanistan itself is weak and it has got, there is corruption there. And so we, we, don't have, we don't have strong allies. And so you have to ask yourself at some point, what are we doing with 110,000 pairs of, of uh, boots on the ground with only 125 Al-Qaeda? We don't have any uh, allies to help us. I mean, how much longer are we gonna do this? And will we continue to have the support of the American public? Well, you won't, you won't, you won't have it whole lot longer if you don't do something to change the mission or make it clear that we're somehow trying to extricate ourselves. It's not enough to say we have to stay there because we're there. That's what, that's what we're saying now. We're there so we can't leave. I, I don't buy that. Well, let's move to an, another tough problem. Yesterday, Secretary Baker, I looked at your book again, uh, The Politics of Diplomacy, and I looked at the table of contents. The players have changed, but the issues are still the same in the Middle East. Both of you we're almost there, you felt, with various prime ministers um, of, of, of Israel. But where are we now? What, what, what hope do we have that there can be a, a permanent two-state solution in the Middle East? Well, I always say that there will be a permanent two-state solution in the Middle East because there isn't any other option. I mean, that's really, uh, there isn't an option for, if Israel wants to remain a democratic Jewish state, then they need a Palestinian state so that the Palestinians can govern themselves and Israel can get out of uh, what is essentially an occupation. And I think that when Ariel Sharon, the uh, father of the settlement movement, the very, very tough-minded Likud prime minister said, 
I don't think we should try to rule over Palestinians any longer. We have to make the difficult choices, painful compromises, he called them. I think he was articulating exactly that point, that Palestinians need their own state and Israel needs them to have their own state. Now, we did make a lot of progress in, um, after the Annapolis conference. I detail in the book uh, an offer that Ehud Olmert put on the table, uh, a solution for Jerusalem, uh, a land uh, swap of maybe 95% or, or so, uh, a small solution for refugees. I think it was actually a good deal. It is the nature of this unlucky process that, of course, he puts that deal on the table when he's in deep political right. and legal trouble, and the Palestinians decide maybe he can't deliver. But I said to President Abbas, I said, you know, Mr. President, you should have taken the deal in 48. You should have taken it in 67. You should have taken it in 2000. You should have taken it in 2008. Pretty soon, your state is going to be the size of the White House if you don't take a deal. Because the Israelis are creating facts on the ground through settlements. And the way to stop that is not a settlement freeze, which no, no Israeli prime minister can agree to because of his internal problems. But it is to decide what's going to be in Israel and what's going to be in Palestine and get the two states and get on with it. He decided not to uh, do that, and then I, I actually do think it was a mistake to start over in 2009 with a settlement freeze as a precondition, because now Abbas couldn't be less Palestinian than the Americans, so he made it a precondition. And we now have a very bad circumstance, which is that the, Pac the Palestinians have decided to seek their legitimacy through the UN. They're not going to get a state through the UN, and it is uh, simply a diversion. I hope they're going to get back uh, to the table and negotiate. Everybody knows what the settlement is, ultimate settlement is going to be. It's going to be really what the Clinton administration uh, had on the table at the, the second Camp David. Some, some iteration of that with some changes, a few changes around, around the edges. But you know, I was there 20 years ago making the same arguments that Condi was making uh, three years, years ago. ago. Yeah, and uh, it is true what, uh, what Abba Iban, who was the foreign minister of the Palestinians at one, at one point, he said, you know, the Palestinians never pass up an opportunity to pass up an opportunity. <laughs> and, and, and it's true. On the other hand, on the other hand, Israel is creating facts on the ground, and with every settler that moves into the occupied territories, it gets harder and harder and harder for a government in Israel to make the necessary political uh, compromises that they need to make to get to a two-state solution. And Israel will not be able to retain her democratic and Jewish character if she doesn't have a two-state solution. So fast forward to today. What's going to happen in the next year? Zip. Why? Because we have a presidential election coming up. And politics is a reality. Why? Number two, because this Israeli government is not a government that is leaning forward for peace. You need a government that le in Israel that leans forward for peace, that understands what Condi and I just said about retaining the Jewish and, and democratic character of Israel. A government like Itzhak Rabin led back there in, in, in the days uh, at the end of the Bush one 
administration. And the third reason nothing's gonna happen in a year is because the Palestinian polity is divided. You can't make a deal that will last unless you have the entire Palestinian polity at the table. You can't just cut a deal with Fatah and not with Hamas, or with Hamas and not Fatah, and you're not gonna negotiate with Hamas anyway. So those three things are gonna prevent anything positive from happening for at least a year. Let's go ahead and bring in the audience. We have a number of roving mics, and we do have a tradition at the World Affairs Council, we'll see if people will follow it, that questions begin with what, where, when, and they're relatively short, so uh, <laughs> let's see what happens. We have a question from the floor. Please, yep, just, I can't see, so if the roving mic will just go to wherever there's a hand up, right there in the back in the middle. And would you raise your hands? Who has questions so we can get a good sense? Great. Um, I appreciate all the discussion of the Middle East uh, uh, through to Pakistan, but there seems to be an awful lot going on in uh, Southeast Asia that is likely to, in the long run, going to have a greater effect uh, on us economically. And it, it just based on news stories, we seem to be keeping, not having our eye on that ball. Um, can you guys comment about that? area of the world and what we ought to be doing there. Southeast Asia? Mm -hmm. you want to, Southeast Well, let, you go ahead. I spoke know. last. You, you speak. And <laughs> speak. Well, let me put it in the context of what's happening in Asia more broadly, where um, obviously the biggest story in international history, international politics in the last several decades uh, is the rise in influence of China. Uh, which, of course, uh, I was first in China in 1988, and uh, the streets of Beijing were uh, contests between a few horse carts, a few automobiles, and a whole lot of bicycles. And that's not uh, Beijing today. It's not China today. It is a rising power. And I'm very often asked, so how do you uh, contain or how do you deal with or how do you channel the rise of, of China. And indeed, it's not easy to, uh, to deal with a uh, country of 1.3 billion people with an authoritarian system that currently is engaged in a quite mercantilist foreign uh, policy in the mad rush for resources anywhere that it can find them. But I believe that we have to find uh, essentially cooperative ways of managing the rise of China. Now, in that context, what the rest of Asia looks like matters a lot. The United States very much needs to pay attention not just to what we're doing with China, but to our relationships with other democratic states in the region. Japan, which uh, I really hope recovers quickly. We need uh, Japan's economic and political weight in Asia. South Korea, I'm delighted we finally got the free trade agreement with uh, South Korea because that is a huge and important economy, again, a democratic state. India, uh, a country of one billion people, uh, also uh, democratic, that uh, is, is rising. And in Southeast Asia, where we have a number of very good relationships in, for instance, the Philippines, but have the potential for an extraordinarily good relationship with Vietnam. Vietnam is the most surprising place that I went as Secretary of State. I don't know what I expected from Vietnam, but I found a young, energetic population that was wildly pro-American. And that's a relationship that if you are at all concerned about the rise of China, 
we ought to be putting a lot of, uh, a, a lot of interest in and a lot of effort uh, in because Vietnam, uh, I think, has a real future as a power uh, in Asia. Similarly, Indonesia, a huge Muslim population, um, a country that has come back from the brink of, uh, of terrorism in 2000, 2001, uh, led by a very uh, pro-American uh, former military uh, leader, Yoriono. So the gentleman's question is uh, extremely apt because there are a number of countries in Asia with which we have tried to build relations. We ought to be deepening them, deepening them politically, economically, through trade, uh, because that is the answer to a China that will, uh, to a, an Asia that will ultimately be more hospitable to our interests even with the rise of China. I agree with that, and I agree with, and there are two other things I would comment, just two other comments I'd make about China. I think all this talk about the, the decline of the United States is way overblown, it's exaggerated. We have a GDP 50 times the size of, of China's, and, uh, and uh, you just, our military capabilities are just far outstrip China, and she's not gonna catch up for a long, long time, if ever. On the other hand, we, we need to find a way, as Condi said, to, to, to manage our relationship with China in a cooperative way. There are many things that we can uh, cooperate with China on. Regional trade, uh, uh, terrorism, energy security, things like that. Yeah, we have differences, and we're gonna continue to have them with Tibet and with Taiwan and with their approach uh, uh, to Iran's nuclear uh, uh, aspirations. But we need, to, we need to cooperate with China where we can. We have a big stake in having the best possible relationship we can with China. She has a big stake in having the best possible relationship she can with us. So cooperate where we can and manage our differences. But don't start looking at China as an enemy. If we need to contain her, we will, we will rely on the countries, we will rely on our own strength, number one, but also the countries that Condi has mentioned. But let's don't get a mindset in here about we need to recreate an enemy somehow because it means we Republicans can win elections. That's sort of dumb. Uh, we don't need to do that. And, and so let's manage the differences, cooperate where we can, but always guard against, we will always be vigilant about any uh, hegemonistic tendencies China might uh, exhibit toward uh, Southeast Asia. If I could just add to, we also have to recognize that, that the Chinese leadership, I think, understands they're riding a tiger. I mean, yeah. 1.3 billion people, they pulled 500 million people out of poverty, but they got hundreds of millions yeah. more to go. They had 180,000 reported riots last year. They've got product safety problems. Their solution to their product safety was to execute the guy in charge of product safety. Well, that's not a long-term solution to that, that problem. Uh, they're having, the blogosphere is going crazy on them and they're terrified of the internet, trying to hack into people's servers to find that last human rights advocate. And you know, something funny happens when you mess with nature. Everybody thought that the one-child policy was brilliant as a way to control population. Well, in some of those rural areas, if you were gonna have one child, you wanted a boy. And a lot of girls disappeared. And now 30 million Chinese men can't find mates. And so Chinese demographics is also a huge problem for them. So uh, there's a tendency sometimes to paint China as 10 foot tall and to see the kind of uh, straight line projection from where they are to where they will be. And of course they will challenge the United States and become the dominant power. 
um, I, I really don't see it. Not to mention that they got a huge housing bubble. I mean, their economy has a lot of, a lot of issues as well. Uh, I remember, I'm old enough, Condi Eden, to remember when, uh, they, when people used to say that Japan Inc. was going to take over the world, okay? I happened to have been Treasury Secretary then, and there are a lot of people, I'll even mention names, Paul Krugman, who used to write, we're going down the tube so fast, China, I mean, Japan's going to take over the world. Well, guess what? Uh, that didn't happen. And the same people that are writing, the same people that are writing that China's going to take over the world are going to be sorely disappointed, too. And uh, it, it, it all... <laughs> It all boils down, in my view, I mean, I was doing some, some figuring the other day, and I, I figured out that I am, I, I am as old as one-third of the United States. Now, I don't know whether that speaks to how old I am, or, or how old I am, or how young the country is, but I've learned something in, the, in those 81 and a half years, and that is don't ever, ever, ever bet against Uncle Whiskers. I've seen us come back so many times. And we just, Let's take a question Absolutely. over there. Saudi Arabia. That's no question, just Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Well, we, uh, we have had a long and beneficial relationship with Saudi Arabia ever since Franklin Roosevelt met with King Ibn Saud. Uh, on a cruiser, I guess it was, somewhere within the Persian Gulf or in the Atlantic or wherever it was. And uh, they've, been our, they've been good friends of the United States. They do not share our principles and values. Uh, hopefully, uh, Saudi Arabia will get out in front of the Arab Spring uh, or Arab Awakening, if you want to call it that, that's coming. We, hey, we, had a, we had a conference on the 20th anniversary of the Madrid Peace Conference last week in Washington that the United States Institute for Peace and the Baker Institute at Rice University sponsored. And Prince Turki al-Faisal was one of our panelists. He was, the, he was the intelligence director of Saudi Arabia when I was Secretary of State. And he said, what is this Arab awakening? Awakening? Does this mean I've been asleep all my life? <laughs> uh, but they need to get out in front of it. And there are some signs that King Abdullah yes. is beginning to do that. But make no mistake about it, we don't want to lose. We, I mean, I, I served in three administrations, and in every one of them, we had a written policy that we would go to war to protect our access, secure access, to the energy reserves of the Persian Gulf. That's Saudi Arabia. That's realism. That's maybe not quite as much idealism as we would like, but it is extremely important to us that Saudi Arabia not erupt into chaos or that we don't or that we lose uh, our access to those energy reserves and they have been they really have been a good ally now that's not to excuse what happens with all of the schools that they're funding in places like Pakistan and uh, other places that that uh, teach bad things uh, about uh, America. I, I would agree, and I, I just have to note that um, our former ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Jem uh, Oberetta and his wife are here, served us really very well in Saudi Arabia, Dallas's own, and so I want to acknowledge that. Jim, why don't you stand up, you and Anita. Um, I, I 
agree with Jim. Look, we, we need Saudi Arabia. I want to just pick up on the point you made about King Abdullah because um, in his own extremely conservative context, King Abdullah is a reformer. Yeah. Uh, he has created this $10 billion university, a technical university. Now, why do you need a technical university? Because King Fahad University had become a place where people studied really only religion and didn't get, as he put it, the kind of 21st century uh, skills that people need. Uh, he was also a major proponent of Saudi students coming to the United States to study because he thought that that was important to have that kind of exchange. And when he said women should vote in 2015, all right, now maybe that doesn't sound like a big headline, but you know from the Saudi king, to say that women should vote in 2015. As long as they don't drive. As long the as they don't drive, they can vote. That's all right. You know what? If they, Jim, you know what? If they vote, they'll eventually drive because That's they'll right. vote it into, into uh, the laws. True. So I'm actually, um, I'm actually a fan of, of uh, King Abdullah, and uh, I think the big problem in Saudi is succession. Uh, no yeah. one really knows what comes after him. He is 87, 88, or 89 years old, depending on who you listen to. And uh, perhaps among the half-brothers, uh, there is not quite as much commitment to reform as I think you see with Abdullah. But we ought to all be fans of Saudi Arabia. I mean, it is very much in the national security interest of the United States that we are. We have time for about two more questions. I see one over there. So uh, certainly there's no Eurocentric focus to this conversation today. <laughs> uh, we, I don't even think we've mentioned it at all, but I did want to ask about that. Uh, could you speak a little slower? He's over in a corner of the room where you're not coming through very well. You're coming through on the speaker. If you could move forward just a little bit. Okay. Is this better? Yeah, better. that's better. Yes, all right. thank you. So I said certainly no fear of us having a, a Eurocentric conversation today. Euro. Uh, but I did want to ask about uh, economic Euro. security. Can you hear? Economic yes. security. Yes. Economic so the economic security, certainly in the news, seems to be the, the debacle in Greece and then in Italy and, and in southern Europe. So can you comment on what our uh, policy should be at this point in time to help uh, secure you know, our opportunity to improve our economy um, when Europe's economy does not appear to be taking mean, the steps what, what necessary? Should our, what should our policy be economically in this country? or our policy toward European? Both. Our for, both, our for, yeah. foreign policy with Europe to help get through this situation. Yeah. Well, our policy ought to be to do, to do something about our humongous debt bomb. We have, we're broke. We are totally broke. Totally broke. If we didn't have the dollar as the de facto reserve currency of the world, we'd be greased. We can't pay our bills. We talk about all these uh, interesting and important foreign policy issues and how we ought to address them and everything. If we don't take care of our debt bomb, we're not going to be able to do any of that stuff, and we're not going to be able to do a lot of other things that we need to do to preserve the standard of living of the American people. We've got to do something about our debt bomb. We have a debt to GDP today of over 100%. For the next five years, absence policy changes, and it doesn't look like there's any policy changes coming immediately out of Washington, D.C. That special panel seems to be hung up. My view is they're not going to be able to come up with a grand bargain that uh, is meaningful enough, that, that cuts uh, spending enough to get us out of this trap. Sooner or later, hopefully, we'll find a way, both parties, Republican and Democratic, 
to come to a grand bargain that does raise some revenues, but that, may, but that mostly cuts this spending we're doing. You know, I worked for Ronald Reagan for eight years, and the Gipper used to say, we're not undertaxed in this country, we overspend, and we do. And he was absolutely right. And so we gotta figure out a way to do that. Uh, and hopefully we will, but I don't think it's gonna happen. One, one thing about this sequester that everybody's worried about, and I'm sure former secretaries of state, all of us are worried about a sequester of the Defense Department that is as draconian as the one they're proposing. I don't think it's gonna happen, even though they don't get a, a bar anything before November 23rd, because as I understand it, that sequester doesn't take place until 2013. And by then, you'll have a new Congress and hopefully a new president. I can say that. <laughs> and and uh, I can say that because I used to run Republican campaigns. But maybe, maybe by then, we will find a way to uh, get to a grand bargain before that thing executes uh, for, for, uh, with finality in 2013. But we are in bad shape economically. Yeah, I, I just want to pick up that, look, the, the Chinese can do nothing to us, I think, but we can do a lot to ourselves. We can. And in this sense, if we don't get our uh, debt bomb, as you call it, under control, and I would, I would mention a couple of other things. Look, the fact of the matter is um, we need to find a way to get private sector-led growth going again in this country. We can't live with 9% unemployment. In, in California, it's 12%. And uh, that is ultimately going to rip us uh, apart. And so if I were to engage in an agenda with the Europeans at this point, and maybe the Japanese and others, uh, it would be a question of how are we going to get growth again. Uh, yes, the Greece problem, the Italy problem, the Europeans have mismanaged uh, the already some, somewhat um, weak system in which they have a single monetary uh, policy a single currency, but they have fiscal policies that are not coordinated. The Greeks have been cooking the books. We all know that now. Uh, they have social policies that are wildly different. One country retiring at 67, another retiring at 55. It's not going to work. We can all see that. But a lot of the problem uh, internationally and globally is that we can't seem to bring growth in the developed uh, countries. And if I were going to suggest something, because I think the Europeans could use a friend at this point, uh, it would be that we try to do something around that. Isn't there something you can do with uh, free trade at this point to stimulate uh, growth, since everybody is looking for export-led growth? Uh, one final point about the United States, and I've been a, this has been a hobby horse of mine, and I've been beating on it all over the, the country. Uh, we have some longer-term problems, too, and from my point of view, our biggest national security threat may actually be our crisis in K-12 education. Yep. Because we now... I agree. Uh, I we agree. are now in uncharted territory for the United States of America. I can look at your zip code and tell whether or not you're going to get a good education. And when I can do that, we are setting ourselves up for failure. We're going to have unemployable people because the $18 an hour unskilled labor job is gone forever. We are going to have people who are therefore on the dole because they will have nowhere else to go. We will continue to have a situation in which 30% of, the, only 30% of the people who take the basic skills test to get into the military can pass it. And we will tear ourselves apart because the thing that holds us together as Americans 
is the belief that it doesn't matter where you came from, it matters where you're going. You come from humble circumstances, you can do great things. That's not true when the educational system is failing as many of our kids as it is. So when I think about uh, big issues of internal repair, that's at the top of my list. And even though I am a specialist in international politics, what I'm listening to in this campaign is do you have an answer for American internal repair the basis on which we then will lead in And you're working on a special project now at the Council on Foreign I Relations. I am. The Council on Foreign Relations, of all places, uh, has actually uh, Joel Klein, the former chancellor of the New York school system, and I are chairing a task force called uh, Education. Ladies and gentlemen, Secretary of State. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.